1: The Romanov family, the people who once ruled Russia, were locked into a home dubbed the House of Special Purpose. Bars on the windows, guards day and night. A revolution had forced Tsar Nicholas II to abdicate the throne of Russia. The people had spoken. They wanted nothing to do with Nicholas. With the Romanovs out of the picture, soon to be murdered, the nation was in limbo. Who? would lead them. The ensuing power vacuum opened a door, a door into which stepped one of the bloodiest regimes in world history. To understand how the Soviets rose to power, we have to step back a moment to understand the conditions that allowed them to take charge, that allowed a philosophy which so hated religion to take hold, leading to the deaths of over 20 million people. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause on the culture war so we can explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truce. Let's go back to just before the fall of the Romanovs in the early 1900s. Russia was not homogenous. It was an empire, the largest country in the world. There were Russians there, and there were those outside of Russia, in the empire. Our guest today is Barbara Engel. She is a retired professor emerita at the University of Colorado Boulder. She's the author, most recently, of Russia in World History, and an incredibly patient person for having walked me through this.
2: So let me say that Russia uh, in 1917 was a multinational empire, of which only about 55% were actually Russians, um, which is not an unimportant thing to keep in mind because it complicated the Soviet experience and the revolution itself.
1: A huge part of the empire was not Russian. They had their own cultures, their own national identities. They were squeezed into one empire. It was the same with Great Britain and all of its colonies. What did people in London have in common with those in Kenya or India? Not much. And as we'll see in a few weeks, the same is true with the United States and its colonies. People in the Russian Empire were socially and culturally diverse. Then there was the income inequality. There was a lot of poverty in rural areas. People in the cities were mistreated in factories or doing difficult labor under harsh conditions. Pay was bad because employers felt that these workers were disposable. One dies or gets injured, you just go and get another one same thing by the way in the United States at the time plus the Czars engaged in war after war sending soldiers into battle like like they were disposable like paper towels
2: um and growing numbers of them um in the years before the outbreak of World War one were feeling a, a great a growing sense of well i suppose self-worth and dignity of a kind that was relatively new to them
1: people started to realize uh we're not disposable and if the government wasn't going to give them representation they'd find someone who would um
2: one of the reasons for it was the activity of um radical parties of a variety of colorations Um,
1: most of whom embraced the ideas of Karl Marx. Marx, of course, was an important guy. He wrote the Communist Manifesto.
2: And uh, who gave workers, that is to say the proletariat, a leading role in world
1: historical development. In other words, Marx told people they weren't like paper towels. They could take action and control their lives, which sounds great. But if their boss at the factory wasn't going to give them what they needed and the government wasn't going to step in, then it was up to these organizations to take action, sometimes advocating violence. Marxist radicalism
2: was very, very uh, widespread
1: among Russia's urban working classes. So most of us know a little bit about Marx and Engel, but here's a refresher.
2: they are two German... Um, thinkers and writers, who devised a way of looking at the world and world history um, that was very, very complex. Uh, Most of that complexity was not conveyed to workers, but, but which in some ways relied essentially on a vision of history
1: that moved in stages. In their mind, history, the life of civilization, moved in predictable patterns from one state to the next what follows is a perhaps oversimplified version of that step one feudalism under feudalism the land is owned by kings and nobles the people working the land are peasants slaves or serfs they don't own the land and in exchange for their work they get a share of the produce and the right to live on the land think the middle ages in western europe this system worked for a little while but According to Marx, it would eventually blossom into, step two, capitalism. Like what we've got here in the United States. Here the land is owned and worked by the people. What do they get in exchange for their work? Money. Of course, the United States hasn't always fit this textbook definition either. The government owns quite a bit of land and we, like many nations, have a history of slavery when the employee, i.e. the slaves, did not receive compensation for their work. In the minds of Marx and Engels, the evolution of an economy didn't stop at capitalism. They postulated that workers would eventually fight back against the inequality found in capitalism, leading inevitably to step three, socialism, and then step four, communism. Where the land is controlled by the people, That is to say, the government, but the people get to use it. All of their needs would be, in theory, met. If the government worked as it should, there would be no shortages and there would be enough to go around. I'll let you in on a little secret. That never happened. Karl Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto with these steps in mind.
2: According to the Communist Manifesto, um, each stage of history prepares its own um, overthrow. Capitalism prepares for its own demise by producing um, a working class, That is to say, proletarians who, according to uh, Marx and Engel, have nothing to sell but their labor power
1: and nothing to lose but their chains. A little heavy-handed, no? The idea was that the proletariat, the workers, would eventually get fed up with their bourgeois counterparts. They'd institute socialism and then communism. That would happen when only the wealthy owned, here's the famous phrase, the means of production, like the tools and the goods we use to make stuff, leaving the workers nothing but their own sweat and blood. That would be their only asset because there was simply no way to rise any higher. Communism in their mind was the best form of society.
2: Where people's needs would be satisfied and they wouldn't have to work all the time and many other
1: wonderful things. It was a vision of utopia, where everyone's needs are just met. This would come about, in Marx's view, when certain requirements were met. It was like a recipe. Once the right ingredients were in place, the communist ideal would rise, like a loaf of bread. One of the big ingredients needed for Marx's vision to come to life was that the only thing that the proletarians would have would be their own blood and sweat. But, and this is a big but, In Russia, near the end of the Romanov's reign... Proletarians,
2: in the sense of workers
1: with nothing to lose but their their labor power, were maybe 3% of the population. 3%. Not the overwhelming majority that Marx said would be required. So when communism was becoming hip in Russia, the Russian people did not meet Marx's recipe for the best time to become communist. Marx said that the conditions had to be right. The whole means of production thing, the proletarian, had to be in place. He also said that the country needed to be largely industrialized. Russia was not. Russia had not met Marx's requirements. So, one branch of government said, We can't do this, it's not time yet. But the Bolsheviks, the party of Vladimir Lenin, said, What the heck? Let's try it and see what happens. If we're strong enough, they'll come around to our side. They just had to wait for the right opportunity. That opportunity came when the Romanovs were ousted in February of 1917, according to the Julian calendar.
2: The ruling dynasty, the Romanovs, fell in February of 1917 as a result of a popular uprising that was prompted by immense dissatisfaction with the government, with the war, with shortages, with the leadership,
1: with everything. And this was a truly popular uprising. All of that sounds super exciting. Fighting against war, food shortages, inequality. But there's one thing that they hadn't fully thought out. Who was going to take over once they toppled the monarchs? There was a power vacuum.
2: And it was filled not by one government, but by two. Um, This was called dual power. And one government, which was a government made up of representatives to Russia's legislative body, which was a fairly limited parliament.
1: Their job was to collect taxes, take care of the military, that kind of thing. They were called the provisional government. But there was another source of authority
2: called the Soviets. And this one, and you you can see the connection here to the title Soviet Union. The Soviets were not uh, an elected-by-everybody government. They were institutions uh, elected by workers, peasants, and soldiers. They were a distinctively lower-class, working-class organization, and they vied with the provisional government or power.
1: You can imagine that it might cause some tension to have two groups in a government who have very different ideas. But we're not talking about American Democrats and Republicans. The Soviets made our parties look like card-carrying members of the Best Friends Gang. The provisional government made decisions, but the Soviets didn't really feel the need to follow through with them.
2: So that, for example, one of the first acts of the Petrograd Soviet, which was the most powerful, I think it was March 1st, issued Order Number 1, which essentially said to soldiers, you don't have to obey your officers anymore unless you agree with what they tell you. And the soldiers, word went out to the soldiers, and they stopped obeying their officers.
1: That kind of nonsense only gets you so far. A governing body is only effective if people do what they say.
2: One of the reasons for the fall of Nicholas II, one of the many reasons, was hatred for World War I. It was enormously unpopular among the people of Russia. By, by 1916, soldiers were, to, con- to quote Lenin, v- voting for peace with their feet they were deserting
1: by the millions there's that name again lenin who was this guy basically he was a marxist part of the bolshevik political party in russia though he spent much of the build-up to the revolution outside of russia his head was on the chopping block so what better time to see western europe see the sights the light on the Colosseum is so beautiful it reminds me of how badly I want to foment insurrection and murder my political enemies. And that's just what he did. He fomented insurrection from afar. The man loved to foment. He took advantage of the abdication of Tsar Nicholas. He knew that the people were tired. They had just been through the unsuccessful and bloody Russo-Japanese War. They didn't want to jump into World War I. He saw that anger and the inequality, the people's desire for a constitution, and stoked the fires. That Tsar Nicholas is a pretty bad dude, huh? Him and his bourgeois war to protect capitalism. It'd be a shame if the people were to revolt and make me the leader. And they listened to him, in the pursuit of a utopian vision led by Lenin and the Bolsheviks, i.e. the majority party. Their platform was better working conditions, ownership of the means of production would be transferred to the people, and disengagement from World War I. Also, they'd stop foreign ownership of capital in Russia, because...
2: Yeah, about a third of capital in Russia on the eve of World War I was owned by foreign companies.
1: It would be a workers' utopia. But, as we know, utopias, by definition don't exist. Marx's textbook vision of communism was about to go for a little test spin, where it shape shifted dramatically. These forces changed the course of history, built on promises of economic equality, and killed millions of people, and brought about the world as we know it today. What sounded like a good idea became a prison. We'll continue our story after these messages.
0: Listen to these conversations and more by searching Grace Enough Podcast on your favorite listening app or by visiting graceenoughpodcast.com.
1: We're back in the heart of a revolution. The October Revolution, which took place either in October or November, depending on which calendar you're using, Russia was, up until this point, not on the Gregorian calendar you and I use today.
2: When the Bolsheviks finally gained a majority in the Council of Soviets... They resolved to overthrow the provisional government and establish a government of Soviets.
1: Led by a guy we've already mentioned, Vladimir Lenin. Starting with Lenin, things got really bad for anyone who disagreed with the Bolsheviks. Really, they got bad for everyone. As soon as the Bolsheviks took power, they demanded that everyone agree with them. Act like they did. And we're talking everyone. Everyone there was no room for dissent.
2: There's no question that he was ruthlessly power hungry, that he did not brook opposition to his ideas, although he never, in terms of his own party members, responded with with violence um, to those disagreements.
1: That is a tidy little distinction though. He didn't kill his own party, but guess what he did to the opposition? to people who weren't completely with him. He killed them, put them in gulags, which were prison camps, or, might be creative, he had them shot. Um, He believed that
2: a a communist party should be disciplined and he imposed discipline on his people. Um, And he believed that when you make a revolution, you have to break some eggs and lots of eggs got broken.
1: I don't want to downplay the oppression under Lenin. We'll get there soon together to demonstrate the real damage. We're heading to a much darker chapter and I don't want to overload you with that right now. Suffice it to say, things were bleak. Bleak in ways I cannot personally imagine. For example, in 1918, shortly after he came to power, Lenin sent an order to communists in Russia demanding that they publicly hang 100 kulaks and take their grain. Kulaks is one of those words that shape shifted in this era, but let's just say it's sometimes applied to peasants who owned land. They were forced to hand over their property. It would then be used for farms run by the government. The kulaks resisted collectivization and paid with their lives, even staging a revolt that resulted in the Soviets sentencing them to death. Here is an excerpt from Lenin's order, read by a friend of mine. We need to set an example. One, you need to hang, hang without fail, so that the public sees at least 100 notorious kulaks, the rich, and the bloodsuckers. Two, publish their names. Three, take away all of their grain. Four, execute the hostages, in accordance with yesterday's telegram. This needs to be accomplished in such a way that people for hundreds of miles around will see, tremble, know, and scream out. Let's choke and strangle those blood-sucking kulaks. Break a few eggs, indeed. In a future episode, we're going to show you how truly terrible that really was. Not to be macabre, but because it's important that we know. Under Lenin, freedom of expression was restricted. You couldn't just speak your mind because someone could be listening. This is the political policing so prominent in George Orwell's 1984, where people listened in on each other. Neighbors spied on neighbors, husbands on wives, children on parents. As a result, they went from breaking a few eggs with arrest and murder under Lenin to outright terror under his successor, Joseph Stalin. Here is Barbara Engel again.
2: You were supposed to uh, look everywhere and unmask your enemies. And so denunciations, uh, I mean, you know, tens of millions of people were arrested in the thirties, especially, and again,
1: in the late fifties before Stalin's death. The numbers are not really exact, but it's estimated that under Stalin, who ruled after Lenin, millions of Russians were killed, millions of their own people. Now we don't remember these people in the United States. There is no national holiday for them. And if you're like me, it was never brought up in your public education except maybe in passing while reading Animal Farm. We do remember some atrocities, though. Take the Holocaust under Adolf Hitler during World War II. But our memories are limited there, too. If you don't believe me, just let me ask you a simple question. Who did Hitler's regime target for the Holocaust? The Jewish people, right? Well, you're correct. Hitler killed six million Jews in concentration camps but what you may not know is that he also killed 3 million christians and 2 million of a mixture of gypsies homosexuals and disabled people for a total of 11 million people why do we not know that why fixate on just over half of the people in that group for that matter did you have any idea how many people died under stalin we know that hitler's germany was nothing short of an atrocity but If you had to guess, would you say that Stalin killed more or less than Hitler? Hitler killed 11 million people. Stalin doubled that, killing 20 to 25 million people in his reign. And most of us don't know about it. Even fewer of us know that Chairman Mao killed 44 million of his own people with his Great Leap Forward policy four times as many people as Hitler. Let's explore those numbers a little bit closer. In Russia, 30,000 kulaks, those land-owning peasant farmers, were killed in the 1930s. Another two million were forcibly moved to the far north and Siberia. Christians were targeted in the early years of Stalin because the clergy resisted the Communist Party. After all, the church had been a department under the old regime. They were a symbol of the czars, of the old days. So, Christians were among those targeted for death and gruesome labor camps. 45,000 Orthodox churches were destroyed. One report said that of the 1,240 Catholic places of worship, only two were not turned into farm buildings, warehouses, shops, or public toilets. Two. By the time I was a kid, communism had become almost a dark joke. Society questioned whether or not our American fears were justified because the communists were portrayed in the media as silly or out of date, out of touch, and on the other side of the world. They were never really going to drop the nuclear bomb. And remember those silly old films of children climbing under the desk to hide from atom bombs? Together, that stuff kind of combined to make us think the Russians were hapless, harmless. At least, that was the impression I had as a kid. Russia killed 20 to 25 million of its own people. That is the combined population of Ohio and Georgia. Another communist leader, Chairman Mao, murdered more than the entire current population of modern-day California. We spend very little time remembering these people. We have several Holocaust museums, but when was the last time you heard of a communism memorial? There are some, but do you know where they are? As for Stalin, who, along with Khrushchev, led the charge on much of Russia's bloodshed, some people in Russia don't remember him for his murders.
2: On the other hand, and I'm going to give you the other hand because because I spent a lot of time in the Soviet Union, and and one of the benefits of that is you get to see things through the eyes of the people who live there. Um, And one of the things you you would find then and even more now is that Stalin is, is a beloved figure in certain circles. Why is that? Because in Stalin's time, he made the Soviet Union a great power. He oversaw a country that industrialized without foreign capital and my image of this when i'm teaching is as if a whole people lifted itself up by its bootstraps um, and made it the second most powerful country in the world of oh, the first being the us of course and that pride in their own achievements is identified with stalin not an accident stalin made sure that that would be so Um, And people remember him with warmth.
1: Warmth because he made Russia a great nation, a world power. Lenin and Stalin led their country through murder and silencing of dissidents. But they were strong leaders. People, for who knows what reason, love strong leaders. Isn't it amazing what people are willing to give up in exchange for promises of greatness? As we'll demonstrate in coming episodes... This is quite a lot more than breaking a few eggs. We're talking about the elimination of millions and millions of people in order to make a country great. Subscribe to our feed so you get all the latest episodes as they're released. We've been publishing a new episode every other Tuesday. Special thanks to Barbara Engel for her expertise. Her most recent book is Russia in World History. Here's my challenge to you this week. Tell three friends about the Truce Podcast. Together, we're creating an intelligent, high production value, important show. Help us out by spreading the word. You can do it right now so you won't forget. Truce is listener-supported. You can donate a little each month via Patreon or all at once via PayPal. The links are on our website at trucepodcast.com. If you help out on Patreon, you can get access to lots of content that is not available anywhere else. You can even get a special personalized video message straight from me. Details are on our website at trucepodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Chris Darren. This is Truce. Hey, I know the episode is over, but I just wanted to say one little fact-checking nugget. It turns out that Genghis Khan may or may not have been one of the most terrible murderers in history. The trouble is, it happened so long ago, the numbers are shaky. So, it could be Mao, Genghis Khan, Stalin, Hitler. It could be Genghis Khan, Mao, Stalin. I don't really know, but I thought rather than re-edit the whole episode, I'd just tag on this little correction.